this is Elaine, and for the next hour I'll be reading from the March 2nd and 3rd, 2024 issue of the Wall Street Journal Weekend on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. And first, Insurance Standoffs Squeeze Patients by Melanie Evans. Patients are getting ominous warnings in their mail mail and inboxes. They are about to lose insurance coverage of their doctors. The threatening letters and emails have sent patients reeling, unsure what to make of it all. They are flooding doctors with calls, asking questions, snapping up appointments with the physicians, and taking to social media to complain. The patients are caught in the middle of unusually fierce and public contract disputes this year. Sparring in New York City are health insurers such as Giants United Healthcare and Aetna, which pay for medical care, and big name hospital systems like New York Presbyterian and Mount Sinai Health System, seeking more money for the treatment provided by their doctors. At stake for the patients, if their insurer drops coverage, pay hundreds, if not thousands, of dollars more out of pocket for treatment with their longtime doctor or find a new one. Although the sides usually reach agreements before a breakup, current standoffs have resulted in some people already losing coverage, while others wait anxiously to see what happens. Look at how much pain and suffering you're causing. Look at how much distress you're causing. Look at how little I'm sleeping, said Sarah Digby, who got one of the emails on Tuesday. Digby sees doctors at New York Presbyterian, which said in the email that she may lose her insurance coverage from CVS Health's Aetna at the end of May. New York Presbyterian said the insurer has failed to offer enough. Aetna said the hospital system's demands are unsupportable. Both declined to say what rate increase they are seeking. Hospital systems treating patients and the health insurers who pay for care have often wrangled over the, ter their ter the terms of their next contract, and contentious disputes have sometimes spilled over into public threats of lost coverage. Yet the standoffs, which are also taking place from Arizona to Ohio, have gained in number and intensity this year, according to industry experts. Higher labor costs have prompted hospitals to insist on bigger payments, adding to the hardened positions of some hospitals is new pricing data, which became public in 2021 and 2022, and can show that rivals are getting better terms. Patients' growing use of medical care following a pandemic lull has increased costs for insurers, however, and raised pressure from Wall Street to keep a lid on spending. For the increasing numbers of patients pulled into the brinkmanship, the risk is, cert is creating anxiety. After getting the warning, Digby, who has chronic condition called endometriosis that causes pain, quickly scheduled an ultrasound and messaged a doctor to see if she needed another procedure before the cutoff with her doctors. I can't lose them, she said. Her doctors, she said, were able to diagnose and treat her condition after she spent years trying to get it treated. Typically, the sides negotiate while operating under the current contract. More talks are deadlocking and contracts are being terminated, said Kevin Holleran, a Fitch Ratings hospital analyst. Patients with insurance from United Healthcare, owned by United Health Group, began losing some in-network coverage for Mount Sinai system in New York in January. 
United Healthcare ended coverage for more Mount Sinai hospitals as of Friday, and it will cut off benefits for some Mount Sinai physicians on March 22nd. The dispute, which could mean 80 to 100,000 patients losing in-network coverage, boiled over after Mount Sinai reopened their contract early. Anxious Mount Sinai patients are inundating doctors with pleas for help and questions about whether they will be able to keep seeing their doctor. Alan Adler, an obstetrician gynecologist who is also Mount Sinai's senior medical director for physicians contracting and billing, said he seeks to reassure patients who are getting conflicting answers about coverage. They're freaking out, quite honestly, he said. The hospital system sought new terms because of rising labor costs, and its analysis of newly public hospital pricing data indicated Mount Sinai wasn't paid as well as some of its competitors, said Brett Estes, Mount Sinai's chief managed care officer. We were really left with no choice but to force the issue, Estes said. United Healthcare said Mount Sinai's proposals would increase its rates by 43 to 58 percent over three to four years. We continue to await a realistic proposal for Mount Sinai that's affordable and sustainable for New Yorkers and employers, the company said. Estes called the insurer's description of Mount Sinai's rates inaccurate, but he wouldn't say what the hospital system was requesting. New Yorker Beth Balsam and her two daughters are now racing to see Mount Sinai doctors. Balsam's daughters squeezed in appointments this past week. She booked an appointment next week. We're trying to get our health care as up-to-date as possible, recognizing like we may be in the desert for a while, she said, or a long while. Patients have limited protections under federal and state rules. Sometimes insurers keep paying for medical services during a contract dispute to avoid running afoul of regulations requiring adequate doctors and other services. Federal protections against surprise medical bills also give patients temporary additional coverage for pregnancy, ongoing hospitalizations, and ongoing treatment for serious or complex conditions. State regulations, meanwhile, can help some people keep coverage for ongoing treatment for a period of time. In New York, people can get 60 to 90 day extensions in some circumstances, but only if their employer is one that purchases a health plan for its workers, rather than a so-called self-insured employer that finances coverage itself. A.J. Palumbo and May Chan of Suffolk County, New York, are scrambling to see whether United Healthcare will cover Chan's C-section at a Mount Sinai hospital scheduled for next Wednesday, five days after the insurer said it would stop coverage at the hospital. Palumbo, 40, and Chan, 38, want to go ahead with the C-section at the hospital. They hadn't budgeted for paying for delivery without insurance, said Palumbo, who fears it could cost them tens of thousands of dollars. He's waiting anxiously for written confirmation that United Healthcare will cover the delivery. I tend to be as careful as I can be, he said. CVS and Walgreens will sell abortion pill within weeks. Pharmacy chains CVS and Walgreens will begin dispensing Mifepristone, commonly known as the abortion pill, in coming weeks. The two pharmacy chains said Friday they received certification to dispense the pills following a regulatory shift last year to allow bricks and mortar pharmacies to offer the pill with a prescription. 
The company said they would distribute the pill in a way consistent with state laws, meaning it won't be offered in states that don't allow legal access to abortion through 10 weeks, and will begin rolling out the pill in a handful of states. Both said they wouldn't make it more wouldn't make it available via email excuse me, via mail order. The drug is already available via other mail order pharmacies and telehealth platforms. A CVS spokeswoman said its stores in Massachusetts and Rhode Island would begin filling prescriptions for it by the end of March. It states, in states where it is allowed, all CVS pharmacies are expected to offer it within the next 45 days or so. A spokesman for Walgreens Boots Alliance said it expected to begin dispensing the pills within a week in some locations. The company will start with five states, New York, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, California, and Illinois. The spokesman said Mifepristone eventually would be available in all locations in states where it is allowed, but he didn't put a time frame on when the rollout would be complete. Our goal is to gradually expand availability to all locations in all legally permissible states in a phased approach, he said. New York Times earlier reported the pharmacy's certification. Today is an important milestone in ensuring access to it, a drug that has been approved by the FDA as safe and effective for more than 20 years, said President Biden. Walgreens last year became the first pharmacy chain to say it would pursue certification to dispense the abortion pill, followed soon after by CVS. Walgreens clarified it wouldn't dispense the pill where it would be illegal after Republican state attorney generals warned pharmacies could face legal consequences. The drug is part of a two-drug regimen that is used to end pregnancies up to 10 weeks of gestation. It is used in more than half of all abortions, the abortion rights nonprofit Guttmacher Institute has said. CVS will carry generic drug made by drug maker GenBioPro, and Walgreens will carry the brand name Mifeprex from drug maker Danco. The abortion pill remains the center of litigation set to be argued this month in the Supreme Court. The court will consider whether the FDA properly loosened restrictions around the pill. The court could decide to reinstate the pill's original safeguards, which would mean the pharmacies would have to stop dispensing. Today's announcement from CVS and Walgreens shows that we have what we have always known. Medication, abortion, can and should be treated as any other FDA-approved medication, said Kirsten Moore, founder of the nonprofit Expanding Medication Abortion Access Project. Anti-abortion groups have said that mifepristone is dangerous to women and can cause heavy bleeding and pain. They've also said the shipping, that shipping the pills is illegal under an 1873 law called the Comstock Act, which made it unlawful to send obscene or immoral materials via mail. Documents trial date likely to slip. Prosecutors push for a July start. Trump's lawyers seek longer delay. Fort Pierce, Florida, a federal judge signaled Friday that Donald Trump's trial on charges he mishandled classified documents is still likely months away. A May 20th start date for the trial had been on the books, but both sides and during a court order hearing Friday appear to acknowledge the schedule will slip. 
federal prosecutors are now pushing for a July start date, and Trump's lawyers are seeking a longer delay while he runs for the presidency. U.S. District Judge Aileen Cannon declined to set a new date during the hearing, but suggested the prosecution's proposed schedule may be unrealistic. The judge noted that dozens of legal motions remain pending and said that a lot of work remains to be done in the pretrial phase of this case. Special counsel Jack Smith's team, which is prosecuting the case, said that said the matter needed to proceed expeditiously without regard to the political calendar. Trump's lawyers argued he couldn't get a fair trial until after the November election and said the earliest they could be ready is August 12th. We, are very, we very much continue to believe that a trial that takes place before the election is a mistake and should not happen, Trump lawyer Todd Blanche said. You're talking about taking President Trump off the campaign trail for blocks of time for, no, for really no reason. <clears throat> Excuse me. Trump attended the hearing, sitting between his lawyers and with his hands crossed and smiling at times. Trump's political opponents said he hoped his legal had hoped his legal difficulties would torpedo his latest run for the White House, but his maneuvering has, at a minimum, pushed many of his court proceedings until later in the election cycle. And it is possible that one or more of the criminal trials he is facing won't be wrapped up by Election Day. Cannon's hearing came just days after the Supreme Court agreed to consider whether Trump is immune from prosecution or separate federal charges that he plotted to overturn the 2020 election, buying Trump more months before any trial in that case, which had been scheduled to start early this month. Meanwhile, the parallel prosecution in Georgia is mired in drama as a judge in Fulton County considers whether to disqualify District Attorney Fannie Willis and one of her lead prosecutors because the two had a past romantic relationship. <clears throat> Only Trump's criminal trial in New York over hush money paid to Stormy Daniels ahead of the 2016 election looks ready to start as scheduled on March 25th. Trump's lawyer on Friday said it would be too hard to prepare for the Florida trial while defending that case. The classified documents case stemming from Trump's handling of classified material at his Mar-a-Lago club has been slowly wending its way through through the court in South Florida, overseen by Cannon, who was appointed to the bench by Trump in 2020. Trump faces 40 felony counts alleging he willfully kept classified material after he left the White House and obstructed the government's repeated efforts to get it back. Prosecutors also say he enlisted staff at the club to delete surveillance footage showing boxes being moved around the property so it couldn't be turned over to a grand jury. He was charged alongside his personal aide, Walt Nor Nauta, and Carlos de Oliveira, a maintenance worker at Mar-a-Lago. All have pleaded not guilty. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the Wall Street Journal Weekend on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. And Musk lawsuit takes on OpenAI and its CEO. <clears throat> Billionaire alleges that chat GPT maker prioritized profit over benefits to humanity. Elon Musk sued OpenAI and its chief executive, Sam Altman, alleging they broke the artificial intelligence company's founding agreement by giving priority to profit over the benefits to humanity. 
The lawsuit filed late on Thursday in a San Francisco court marks a dramatic es escalation of a long-simmering feud between tech industry titans over the future of AI, artificial intelligence. It pits Musk, one of the world's richest people, against the world's most valuable company, Microsoft, and Altman, one of the Silicon Valley's leading entrepreneurs. It also sets up a potential courtroom debate over a topic that has roiled policymakers and businesses for much of the past year. How scared should we all be about advances in AI, and how soon? Musk, who helped found the chat GPT maker in 2015, claims OpenAI's close relationship with Microsoft goes against the company's original commitment to public open-source AI. Upon founding OpenAI, Musk and co-founders Altman and Greg Brockman agreed to pursue the nonprofit approach for a benefit of humanity <clears throat> and not any single company, according to the court ruling. Excuse me, court filing. At the time, the founders' goal was to create a nonprofit counterweight to Alphabet's Google, which Musk thought was too powerful in AI. In an email to Musk in 2015, Altman said he thought it wasn't possible to stop humanity from developing AI and added, if it's going to happen, it seems like it would be good for someone other than Google to do it first, according to the court filing. Musk was OpenAI's primary benefactor at its outset. But after Musk clashed with Altman over control and plans to create a for-profit entity, the lawsuit contends, he stepped down as co-chair in 2018 and slowed his financial contributions. Microsoft then stepped in. The tech giant, which first invested in OpenAI in 2019, ramped up the partnership last year. It invested $13 billion in exchange for what is effectively a 49% stake in the earnings of OpenAI's for-profit arm. OpenAI recently closed a tender offer that valued the company at more than $80 billion. Musk has long warned that what he calls a grave threat to humanity from artificial general intelligence, or AGI, in essence, that machines are able to reason like humans. In the lawsuit, Musk asks the court to rule that OpenAI has effectively achieved an early version of AGI with some of its tools. He also points to how Microsoft's deal with OpenAI only gives it access to the company's pre-AGI technology, effectively arguing that Microsoft should remove the latest version of ChatGPT from its products. OpenAI Inc has been transformed into a closed source de facto subsidiary of the largest technology company in the world, Microsoft, the suit says. Under its new board, it is not just developing, but it is actually refining an AGI to maximize profits for Microsoft rather than for the benefit of humanity. Musk is bringing claims including breach of contract, breach of fiduciary duty and unfair business practices against OpenAI and the two co-founders, Altman and Brockman. In the lawsuit, he asked for an order compelling OpenAI to make all of its research and technology open to the public and for the company and Altman to be required to give up all money received as 
a result of the practices alleged to be unlawful. OpenAI declined to comment. Musk didn't respond to a request for comment. Altman has said OpenAI takes its safety obligations seriously and that the technology should be developed with great caution. But he says he also believes it offers immense commercial possibilities. While the lawsuit casts Musk as being a defender of OpenAI's founding principles, some observers see the lawsuit as evidence of bitterness. Mostly, this is an argument that Altman hasn't managed the various entities as Musk would prefer, Anne Lipton, a law professor at Tulane University, wrote on social media. The lawsuit recounts several episodes from the historical development of AI and portrays Musk as often a lonely voice in Silicon Valley warning of the technology's potential dangers. In one 2013 incident, Musk warned Larry Page, then the CEO of Google, that AI systems might make the human species irrelevant or even extinct. Page responded by claiming Musk was being specious, specious, excuse me, that he favored the human species over intelligent machines, according to the lawsuit. Later, Musk tried to stop Google from buying the AI lab DeepMind, which now helps lead the company's AI efforts, arguing to DeepMind co-founder Dennis Hassabis that the future of AI should not be controlled by Larry, referring to Page, the lawsuit adds. Much of the lawsuit rests on claims that OpenAI's co-founders agreed with Musk that AI should be controlled for the benefit of all humanity to avoid potential existential risks. It cites a 2015 email from Altman to Musk saying that the technology would be owned by the foundation and used for the good of the world, and adding that safety should be a first-class requirement. Musk argues that his early financing of OpenAI was contingent on those promises. The lawsuit says he contributed more than $44 million to OpenAI between 2016 and 2020. It also says he paid its initial office rent expense and expended significant time helping with early hiring. Musk has said that poorly built AI could have catastrophic consequences for humanity. Since OpenAI's chat GPT system became a viral sensation in 2022, Musk has criticized it for being too politically correct and warned it could lead AI to become too powerful for humans to control. Last year, Musk created a new AI company called XAI with the goal of building a rival to OpenAI. Two weeks after incorporating AX, excuse me, XAI, Musk signed an open letter calling for a six-month pause on AI development models to allow regulators and companies to assess the risks. The lawsuit adds to the turmoil surrounding OpenAI, which includes the board ousting Altman last November, only for him to return weeks later. The Wall Street Journal reported that the Securities and Exchange Commission is investigating whether the company misled its investors during the process. In world news, school goes underground in Ukraine to escape bombs. Kharkiv, Ukraine, seven-year-old Nikita's route to school every morning involves heading down to the subway here in Ukraine's second city, 
and spending about two hours underground in class. It is the safest place in a city that lies 21 miles from the border with Russia, and the school where Nikita would have begun first grade was destroyed in a Russian strike anyway. My school burned down, he said cheerfully in an interview accompanied by his grandmother. There was a boom. Two years since Russia invaded Ukraine. Residents of Kharkiv are no longer waiting for the war to be over. In the subway, classes don't stop when the missiles are fired on the city. Concrete bus stops double up as bomb shelters, and new restaurants have opened up even as Russia intensifies strikes against the city. If Moscow's aim is to wear Ukrainians down, it isn't working, said Mayor Yor Tekov. People are not tired. They are furious. As Terakov spoke, rescue workers were digging through the rubble of an apartment block hit by a missile earlier that day. An eight-year-old child was among 11 victims of one of the deadliest strikes on the city since the start of the war. Nowhere in Ukraine is safe from threat of Russian missiles, missiles, but Kharkiv's proximity to the border makes it especially vulnerable. Missiles fired from Russia, ter Russian territory takes less than a minute on average to land there. By the time air raid sirens warn of an incoming strike, the missile has often landed. The city's population fell to about 300,000 at its lowest ebb compared with nearly 2 million before Russia's invasion. But many residents returned to Kharkiv after Ukrainian forces drove the Russians away from the outskirts at the end of 2022. The population is now back up to 1.3 million. City authorities are working to keep the city alive as Russia slowly tries to kill it. Unfortunately, we must adapt, said Terakov. At the start of this, as the start of the second school year since Russia's invasion approached, they considered how to proceed, how to provide schooling for the 57,000 children still living in the city. Few schools had bomb shelters strong enough to risk holding classes there. The subways seemed like the best solution. Many residents had sheltered there during the early days of Russia's invasion. In the Universität station, a broad walkway overlooking the tracks was partitioned into classrooms. At first, some parents were skeptical, said Ola Porenko, the deputy head of education department for Kharkiv's district. But the five subway schools were soon at full capacity. When I found out the school was going to be in the metro station, I thought it was like in a dystopian book, said Natalia Yarova, as she waited to pick up her six-year-old daughter, Yulia, from school. Three times a week, Yulia comes to class in the subway with online schooling the other two days. The subjects taught include Ukrainian language and literature and math. Nikita emerged from class brimming, brimming with excitement recently. Today we had math, nature study, and English. All subjects are my favorite. And why China's economy has hit a roadblock. Jason Douglas. China's economy is at a turning point. An old economic model underpinned by heavy investment in infrastructure and real estate is crumbling. Growth is slowing and prices are falling. How did the world's second largest economy get to this point? Here's a look at what is ailing China's economy and the challenges it faces. Real estate. 
real estate used to account for around one quarter of China's annual economic output. But a lengthy boom came to a halt in 2020 when the government, fearful of ballooning debt, introduced policies that curtailed property developers' access to easy credit. The result, made worse by pandemic-era restrictions, was a steep drop in home sales, new construction, and investment. Gloomy consumers. The real estate slump has deepened a sense of gloom among Chinese consumers. Consumers borrowed heavily to finance home purchases and expected bumper gains. Now they are responding to the property turmoil by cutting back spending. Although consumption picked up a bit in 2023, it remains well below its pre-pandemic trend. Consumer prices. A consequence of weak consumption and private sector investment in China is deflation, which stands in contrast to the inflation that has bedeviled other countries. Consumer prices have been flat or falling for months, and companies have been cutting prices for more than a year. Tapped out debt. China's overall debts have widened to the equivalent of more than 300% of gross domestic product, far in excess of the 253% of GDP of the U.S. the U.S. owes. A chunk of China's debt is owed by its local governments. Their finances are undergrowing pressure now that the revenue from selling land and property developers, a crucial source of income, has dried up. China banks are heavily exposed to both indebted sectors. Faced with weak growth, deflation, and property market turmoil, banks can expect loan losses to mount. Fewer workers. China's workforce is still large, but the boost to the supply of workers from rapid urbanization is mostly played out. People are having fewer babies, and the overall population is shrinking and skewing older meaning the pool of workers and consumers in China is set to get smaller. Those changes will make sustaining economic growth harder in the future. Foreign investment. As the outlook darkens, foreign investors are taking flight. China recorded inflows of foreign investment into factories, offices, and businesses in every quarter since comparable records began in 1998. That run ended in the third quarter of 2023 as foreign companies either sold out or left or stopped reinvesting the profits they earned in China back into their operations there. Stock and bond investors also pulled money out of the financial markets. Raising barriers Seeking new avenues for growth, Beijing is pouring money into factories and new industries, especially green technology. With demand weak at home, the result is a growing glut of products that China is seeking to find buyers for overseas. But Beijing's doubling down on manufacturing and exports is meeting resistance, especially in the U.S. and other advanced economies, where governments are tightening restrictions on Chinese imports and slower growth. In the past, China was able to respond to economic setbacks by boosting government spending, especially on infrastructure. But these days, China's need for roads, railways, and airports has largely been met. 
Another stimulus option for Beijing would be to give more handouts or tax breaks to households, but to top officials, such a consumption-focused approach is regarded as wasteful. With its options for stimulus limited, China looks set for weaker growth. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the Wall Street Journal Weekend on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. And in Opinions, The Golden Book for Saw My Golden Age by Alan Rip, I had an odd request from my wife. Would it be okay if I ordered a 16-volume set of The Golden Book Encyclopedia from 1960? Sarah reluctantly agreed. I located a well-preserved set on eBay and purchased it. When I was a kid, the books came once a month, offering an illustrated sweep of history and knowledge. They were perfect for school projects or simply page-flipping for a picture of petrified wood or an armadillo. The set arrived in good condition, and I immediately tested my memory by opening opening volume 6, ER through GE, to an entry on etiquette, showing a man with a yellow crew cut and bow tie tipping his fedora to a woman in white gloves passing him on the street. Exactly the lesson I remembered. A boy in his striped jersey, my double, stands when a girl in a red dress enters the room. After some browsing of dog breeds and barometric pressure, I searched for the diagram that grabbed my seven-year-old attention when I found it in volume one on page 17 under age. It depicted the lifespans of various animal species, grouped by the hourglass depicting those below 50 years, lion, horse, hippo, under 20 years, canary, cat, squirrel, and the lucky ones lasting 50 years or more. Alongside the parrot, rhino, and elephant was man, rendered as a skinny guy in briefs with groomed brill cream hair, clocking in at 70 years. So that was my allotted time on earth. Granted, 70 wasn't as robust as the giant tortoise projected to live to 125, but it was eons away in the Golden Book era when days dragged forever and I was still a boy. In second grade, we were asked to figure our ages in the year 2000, and we laughed at the idea of ever being as old as 45. Something similar happened in my 30s when I opened an individual retirement account and was told I couldn't touch it until I was 59 and a half, a date that seemed as distant as Saturn. Gradually, the seven-decade endpoint loomed larger as I hurtled through adult life. At each milestone, college graduation, first job, marriage, children, their graduations, AARP card, colonoscopy, grandchildren, Medicare, Social Security. I knew my date with man was drawing closer. It became more vivid with each wrinkle, white hair, liver spot, high school reunion, and arthritic joint. As Ernest Hemingway said about bankruptcy and the sun also rises, 70 came gradually, then suddenly, bringing a birthday brunch with my family, planned for this weekend. Fortunately, six decades of medical science have lengthened the script. The average American male now lives 73.2 years, so my hourglass isn't entirely empty. I could have 
I could move to the Republic of San Mariano, volume 16, page 1217, where men live 84.1 years on average. Both my parents lasted to 90, so there's hope. Meanwhile, I know I've reached a true golden age. I'm no longer merely man, but an old man. And rural Republicans shouldn't fear school choice, Seminole, Oklahoma, by Tom Newell. Republicans around the country have made great strides on education, freedom in recent years. But in some states, especially Texas, Tennessee, Georgia, and Alabama, rural Republican politicians have been an obstacle to progress. They worried about the politics, excuse, politics and the practicality of school choice, but I'm here to tell them they have nothing to worry about and everything to gain. I was elected to the Oklahoma House in 2010. My district, centered in Seminole County, is mostly rural with about 38,000 residents. When I was first elected, we had 14 school systems, most of which enrolled a few hundred students. Public schools provide a common local identity in rural communities. Their sports teams, especially football and basketball in Oklahoma, are a particular source of pride. People don't want to weaken their local school. When I announced my candidacy, a consultant told me I couldn't support education freedom and get elected in rural Oklahoma. I disagreed. All parents want their kids to go to the right school. Voters understand that it's hard for a single school to meet the unique needs of every student, so I ignored the expert opinions and won with 61% of the vote. I, came, I became the first Republican elected to represent a majority Democrat district Rural Republican lawmakers take note. Regardless of how loud the local superintendent or teacher's union representative gets at your town hall meetings, there's a silent majority of parents who know education freedom is good for their kids. Empowering those parents will help, not hurt, your reelection. As soon as I got to the State House, I joined the fight for school choice, introducing one of the country's first bills to allow families to set up education savings accounts. By timing, the timing wasn't right for that reform, but in 2015 we passed a, la a law allowing charter schools statewide. At the time, charter schools were restricted to big cities like Oklahoma City and Tulsa, reflecting rural fears. Shortly after the expansion passed, a K-12 charter opened in my district and began drawing in students who had struggled in traditional schools. The Academy of Seminole was twice, has twice as many students with individualized education programs, plans for students who need special attention as typical as the typical public school. I attended the Academy's first graduation ceremony in 2021. Despite the challenges facing the student body, two-thirds of the graduates had associate's degrees in addition to their high school diplomas. They were better prepared for life because they attended a school that broke the mold. And what about our local public schools? Until then, hardly anyone in the public system believed that a high school senior could graduate with an associate's degree. Now several public schools offer the same path. The existence of the charter school has made public schools stronger. 
I left office in 2016. I now travel the country promoting education freedom to lawmakers. The most common objection I hear from rural Republicans is that they don't think a marketplace will arise in sparsely populated districts. My response is simple. Give it a shot. In the district I represented, there wasn't a marketplace until there was. An educational marketplace definitely won't arise in places where one size fits all. Laws block it. Law, local communities, not only parents, but also teachers, pastors, and local business leaders often have the ability and resources to create a variety of new learning options. These can include micro schools for a handful of students or after school programs that supplement public education. In many states, smart, energetic, and caring people are waiting for lawmakers to untie their hands. 14 years after I ran for office, I'm more convinced than ever that school choice is the right policy for rural communities. In fact, I now believe school choice is an antidote to rural decline. In the rural era of remote work, the lack of educational options keeps families who might otherwise prefer to live in a rural area from moving out of the big city. Every rural Republican wants his district to thrive. Their best bet by far is to back education freedom for all. An EV Madness and the Chinese Menace by Holman Jenkins, Jr. Between panic and glee has been the tone of reporting about a nifty new $11,000 Chinese electric car that is supposedly going to hit Detroit like a wrecking ball, in the words of a New York Times headline. The car is a plug-in hybrid by China's BYD. While it may be a fine car, the alarms strategically leave it leave out an important point. A cheap and desirable Chinese electric vehicle would be a threat to Detroit only because under our easily satirized fuel mileage rules, the U.S. requires its automakers to sell electric vehicles they wouldn't otherwise make, which customers don't want, which can't command a profit. In all likelihood, companies like Ford, GM, and Chrysler parent Stellantis, whose specialty is conventional vehicles, would otherwise continue to focus on conventional vehicles because demand for them remains strong. For reasons I'll get into, it's not clear a super cheap EV would even matter that much to Tesla given America's taste in cars. But the moment was, is interesting for another reason. What logic predicts the data have been starting to show? Green energy use is rising and fossil fuel use is rising even faster. Energy intensity or the amount of energy consumed per unit of global gross domestic product was falling at a rate of almost 2% a year for two decades. Now it's falling at barely 1%. Though it's, though it's early days, this is exactly what you would expect if green energy subsidies mainly subsidize more energy consumption overall rather than emissions reductions. It turns out, despite the institutions, excuse me, intuitions used to sell climate pork to the public, energy demand is not capped. 
fossil fuels don't stop being useful just because green energy is subsidized. If you want to curb emissions, you have to impose a carbon tax. Okay, I've long satisfied myself with this as well understood by wonks, by John Kerry, even by Paul Krugman when he isn't pretending otherwise. The New York Times itself belatedly woke up last week to what it calls the green energy paradox, though it lapsed back into unreality by concluding that energy use, rather than ineffectual climate policy, therefore is the enemy. For the time being, the discovery of the truth is likely to lead to a perverse doubling down on green subsidies. In fact, the most interesting thing to observe will be how long and restlessly government tries to persist in a policy it knows is self-defeating. It's a good time to remember what the late evolutionist John Tooby, who died in November, taught us about coalitional instinct. His most important insight was that stupid or weird ideas are actually more powerful in rallying coalitional solidarity than truthful ones, because truthful ones can be recognized by any rational person. The more biased away from neutral truth, he wrote, the better the communication functions to affirm coalition identity. Coalition-mindedness, he added, makes everyone, including scientists, far stupider in coalitional activities than as individuals. I submit you can't understand elite beliefs and behavior in our increasingly conformity-enforcing society without the concept of coalitional instincts. You might also start to see the utility of a Donald Trump-like figure to act as wrecking ball when elite beliefs become dysfunctional and self-defeating. Getting back to the $11,000 Chinese electric vehicle, if Americans wanted cheap transportation, they'd buy mopeds and 50cc scooters the way people in other countries do. Americans want a lot more from their vehicles. They tell us with their pocketbooks roominess, luxury, technological refinement, amenities. This turns out to be especially true of the EVs they buy, which tend to be large, powerful, and luxurious, and therefore notoriously climate unfriendly. So the threat of the super cheap Chinese plug-in vehicle is exaggerated. Besides, in a further perversity, our climate warrior government already has a 25% tariff to protect Americans from affordable and attractive Chinese electric vehicles and is contemplating greater restrictions on national security grounds. The real menace to Detroit is the obvious one. It has nothing to do with China and everything to do with the U.S. government requirement that U.S. companies build money-losing cars that Americans don't want and that politicians lack the will to make them buy. And climate change? I can't say because science can't say whether it's a doubling, whether a doubling of atmospheric carbon would lead to warning, warming of 2 degrees or 4 degrees Celsius, as the consensus models suggest, or 1 degree or 6 degrees as other equally reputable models suggest. But without coordination, most governments adopted payroll taxes in the last century, though these penalize socially useful work. It's far from implausible that governments would eventually adopt carbon taxes, which are better economically.
You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the Wall Street Journal Weekend on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. And in a Wall Street exchange, can he make shopping at Macy's fun again? The new CEO is drawing on his hospitality training. Our job is to get people compliments by Suzanne Kapner. Macy's new CEO, Tony Spring, talks in food metaphors. One of his favorites, it doesn't take a lot of baking powder to make bread, but without it, you don't have bread. Translation, little things can make a big difference. Spring is trying to apply that philosophy to a classic Wall Street brawl, fighting off investors pushing to control the 166-year-old retailing empire. In December, the investors went public with an unsolicited bid to acquire the company for $5.8 billion. Macy's rejected the offer, but one of the investors, Arc House Management, has launched a proxy fight to overhaul the company's board. Spring, who ascended to Macy's top job February 4th after serving as its president and CEO-elect for nearly a year, unveiled his vision for modernizing the department store chain earlier this week. It includes major moves such as closing a large chunk of Macy's stores, but it also but is also full of smaller details that have the potential to add up to big changes such as adding sales staff to improve service and more mannequins to enhance visual displays. Spring even wants his staff to evaluate the optimal way to display clothing, hanging or folded. Spring, who is 59 years old and is married with two sons, grew up in Harrison, about 30 miles north of New York City. As a child, he used to visit Macy's flagship store in Herald Square with his mom. His favorite department was the cellar, which sells under sells gourmet kitchen products. He learned one of his first business lessons in high school while working at a local Burger King. His initial responsibilities included picking up garbage in the parking lot. It was a humbling experience, but he said it taught him the importance of first impressions. The manager wanted him to understand that customers would make judgments about the restaurant before they even walked in the door. He enrolled at Cornell University with hopes of pursuing a career at a big hotel or restaurant chain, but he was seduced by retailing during Bloomingdale's recruitment session he attended on campus. He joined the company as an executive trainee in 1987. Bloomingdale's parent company acquired Macy's in 1994, bringing the two brands together under one roof. One of his first jobs at Bloomingdale's was housewares buyer. At a trade show, he noticed that people were more apt to buy coffee makers when the smell of coffee was wafting through the air or ice cream machines when they could taste the ice cream. He brought those ideas back to Bloomingdale's and added live chef demonstrations. He gave away turkeys for Thanksgiving. Once, when he had moved on to oversee marketing for the chain, he ran a sweepstakes where Bloomingdale's paid the winner's mortgage for several years. He understands that retailing is theater, said Michael Gould, who was Bloomingdale's CEO from 1991 to 2014. When Spring was a child, he was a finicky eater. Now he eats pretty much everything. He leaned into that lesson when he succeeded Gould as Bloomingdale's chief. The chain had previously shied away from selling luxury brands, believing its customers wouldn't splurge on the pricey goods. Spring added St. Laurent 
Valentino and other labels, and customers snapped them up. The move helped Bloomingdale's outperform its larger sibling. If you never try, how do you know, Spring said. He is pulling from a similar playbook at Macy's, where sales have declined for several quarters in a row. Spring sees an opportunity to update the merchandise with more relevant styles and broaden its reach with new products and categories. Our job is to get people compliments, Spring said. If I can get you a compliment for the sweater you're wearing, then I've done my job. That doesn't mean Macy's will abandon its place as a destination for middle-income shoppers. Spring just wants executives to be on the lookout for new possibilities, or as he said, to not live with a ceiling. His plan also includes closing roughly 30% of the company's namesake stores and opening more Bloomingdale's and Blue Mercury beauty locations. In addition, he's rolling out smaller Macy's stores, a departure from the half-full cavernous locations that dot many shopping malls. Some Macy's competitors have shrunk themselves out of business, and Spring says his strategy isn't about having fewer stores. It's about bringing Macy's out of the past and into the future. We're not going to play by the same playbook and expect a different result, he said. Spring acquired an interest in psychology while in college, and he draws on that in his business dealings. I love understanding how people think, he said, explaining that it makes him an effective negotiator. He asks a lot of questions of employees and suppliers, such as why is colored denim selling now when it never sold before, and why have people quadrupled their spending on fragrances? When Tony asks how you are doing, he actually waits for a response, said Paul Rosengard, a longtime friend and senior advisor to WHP Global, whose brands such as Anne Klein and Toys R Us can be found at Macy's. Andrew Rosen, who founded the Theory clothing brand and is an investor in Alice and Olivia, Veronica Board, and other labels, recently walked Bloomingdale's flagship store in New York City with Spring. He was like an old-time retailer, Rosen said. All the salespeople knew him and said hello. The pressure is on Macy's and Spring to execute corporate turnaround. Arkhouse managing partner Cavriel Cahane said he was unimpressed with Macy's new strategy, dubbed a bold new chapter. Calling something bold doesn't make it so, Cahane said. He added that Arkhouse and Brigade's proposal would offer shareholders immediate cash for their investment and said that Macy's lacks the necessary experience to properly unlock the value of its real estate with only one of the company's 14 directors possessing real estate experience. Macy's has said it will evaluate Arkhouse's director nominees. The approach by the investor group could flush out other suitors for the retail change chain before the Macy's boss has a chance to make changes. The investor group hasn't publicly outlined its plans for Macy's, but analysts say it would likely include significant real estate sales. That has been tried in the past, and in most cases, it's been unsuccessful, said Terry Lundgren, who was Macy's CEO from 2003 to 2016. The investors might make some money, but it's not good for the business. Spring has strategy that will take time, 
said his strategy will take time, but he's also not willing to wait endlessly for results. Reverting to another food metaphor, he explained that you can't plant seeds in a garden and expect to pick fruit right away. There are parts of what we do that require patience, he said. And the Justice Department launched an anti-competitive investigation into United Health involving interviews with healthcare industry officials in sectors where United Health competes, the Wall Street Journal reported. United Health owns the biggest U.S. insurer, a drug benefits man manager, and a network of doctor groups. Executives has, have said its various units don't favor one another and work with competitors. United Health shares fell 2.9% Wednesday. Macy said on Tuesday that it will close about 150 underperforming locations, or about 30% of its fleet, over the next three years. Macy's also delivered its quarterly results, reporting and earnings beat. The company will focus on upgrading its remaining 350 Macy's stores, while also opening similar, excuse me, smaller versions of its namesake chain and adding Bloomingdale's and Blue Mercury locations. The company also put its San Francisco flagship location up for sale. Macy's shares increased 3.4% on Tuesday. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the March 2nd, 3rd issue of the Wall Street Journal Weekend. Your reader has been Elaine. Thank you for listening.